Let's pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight for you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the nice things is, if you have your Bibles, there's always stuff that takes place before the scripture reading. What we have in front of us today is just really the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But if you have your Bibles and you, you turn to Mark chapter 6, and you can go back to the beginning of the chapter. In the verses preceding today's reading, Jesus is going back to his hometown, uh, where when he gets there, the people actually reject him, and they reject his ministry. And it says that when Jesus left that town, he was absolutely amazed at their lack of faith. And as they leave town, what Jesus decides to do is to send his 12 disciples out. He says, I'm going to send you out kind of on a vicarage or a little mission trip. I'm going to send the 12 of you out. And he said, I'm going to give you the authority to do things in my name. And so these disciples go out and they teach. And it says they drive out demons and they actually heal the sick. But now as they're out doing this field work, Jesus is alone, he's without his friends, and it's at this time when his cousin, John the Baptist, was murdered by King Herod. Now, you probably remember it's a pretty dirty murder. Herod had stolen his brother's wife and married her. Uh, John was going around telling everybody, teaching everybody that this was wrong, this was committing adultery. And guess what? The queen was not too happy about that. Uh, he was not very happy to have a pastor coming around, if you will, and telling her how she should live her life in accordance with God's Word. And so you may remember she got her, da- her daughter to do, I don't know, the dance of the seven bales one night. And in the end, um, John the Baptist was beheaded. Now, the death of his cousin, the evil that was in leadership at that time, must have really grieved Jesus greatly. And so now we've got the disciples coming back off this short little mission trip, and they've got very little time to talk because people are still coming for healing and deliverance, so much so that Jesus and his disciples are so busy they don't even have time to eat. You ever have days like that where you're so busy when it just suddenly dawns on you that you haven't eaten all day? I mean, some of you, I know you can't get past eating about every five minutes. But, you know, sometimes, you know, people are talking to you all at once. Uh, the phone won't stop ringing. The uh, computer keeps buzzing that you got email. Uh, you haven't, uh, haven't answered. You got text popping up on your iPhone one after the other. Uh, and your project list already is going into 2013. And, and we still got several months to go in 2012. And everywhere you look, there's another job for you to do, another task for you to do. And you suddenly realize that that funny little feeling that you have in the pit of your stomach is that you haven't had a chance to eat since who knows when. That's the way the disciples were in Jesus. So Jesus said, we need a little R&R. Come away with me. We're going to go to a quiet place where we can get some rest. We're going to talk about the experiences you guys just had, healing people and healing the sick and preaching and all that kind of stuff. And and we're going to talk a little bit about John's death and what that means. And and we're going to have plenty of time just to eat and sleep and, and really not do much of anything. So what they do is they get on the boat and they start sailing to a quiet place 
on the other side of the lake. Now, has this also happened to you? Have you ever gone somewhere to get away from everybody and found out that they got there first? That there were actually people there that you knew and they just couldn't wait when they saw you and they just said, let's let's do a whole bunch of stuff together. Now, obviously, this is what happened to Jesus and the boys. Uh, some track star uh, probably saw them getting on a boat. And he started running from town to town and says, I know where he's going. He's going around the other side of the lake. We all got to get over there. And so people start running to catch him. And when they arrive, there is a crowd. And it says, just the men, number 5,000. Now, this is kind of an aside, but it could be that there were only men since nobody had thought about packing a lunch. (laughs) I don't know. But when Jesus sees the crowd, it says that he had compassion on them. His stomach kind of churned a little bit. He felt sorry for these folks. It just kind of blows me away when you stop and think about it. I mean, he and his disciples are exhausted. They, they need this vacation, if you will. They need this time away to talk and, and to grieve and to download and all of this kind of stuff. They just want some rest, and the people will just not leave them alone. Now, for most of us, the predominant emotion would probably not be compassion. If it was me, I'd say, Nance, get back in the boat. <laughs> you know, we came looking for a quiet place. It ain't going to happen here. Get in the boat. But the Bible says Jesus had compassion. Now, if that tells you or teaches you anything about God, it teaches that you are never a bother to him. I actually know people who've told me they don't really pray very much because they don't, quote, want to bother God with their problems. But here's Jesus. He's exhausted. He's grieving over the death of a close friend. He's hungry. And it says he has compassion on people that ruined his holiday. And for those of you that ever thought, maybe I won't pray about this because it'll just bother God, you cannot bother God with your troubles. God always has compassion on his children. Now, his compassion is that way because he said he sees these folks like sheep without a shepherd. And that's kind of a common image in Scripture. Let me just read you from Jeremiah 50, verse 6. It said, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Jesus sees all of these people out there, and they're like a bunch of dumb sheep. They, they can't fend for themselves. They can't protect themselves. They're not smart enough to bring along a lunch or anything. There's not a McDonald's or a Whataburger or a Chick-fil-A within miles of the place. And Jesus has compassion on them. So here in Mark 6, their current king, Herod, is a self-serving despot and a murderer. And the religious leaders of that day were more interested in looking religious than knowing God. So it says that out of compassion, 
Jesus began to teach them many things. Now, I know you've suffered through almost five years of sermons from me, but wouldn't it really be cool sometime to hear Jesus preach? I think that'd really be cool. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when he's on the road to Emmaus. You may remember, and he comes across these guys, and he says, why do you look like Lutherans, you know, baptized in vinegar? Oh, haven't you heard Jesus died? And all that kind of stuff. And it says, and then Jesus began to teach them, starting in the Old Testament. I mean, they're walking down a road, maybe walking eight to ten miles, and Jesus starts at the beginning of the Bible and starts teaching them a walking, talking Bible study. And later they said, man, weren't our hearts burning in us when when all this is going on? Wouldn't that be cool to walk and talk with Jesus and have him do the sermon? Think it would be any shorter than mine? Don't think so. Don't think so. So here, Jesus teaches them. Now, we're really not told exactly what he teaches them. But I have a feeling it was about the kingdom of God, and it probably was somewhat similar to what we know about the Sermon on the Mount. And, but I still find it interesting that he teaches out of compassion. Now, a lot of times today, we teach people stuff because we think they need it. They may not like it. It's kind of like castor oil. You know, you better take this. It's good for you. Uh, you know, we're often afraid to teach people, though, even some of the things about God, because we're kind of worried that people will think we're just kind of harping on things. But, you know, the gospel is always meant to be freeing. It's always meant to make you feel better. Sure, mean, miserable, rotten sinners who deserve nothing but to fry in hell for the rest of your life. But because of the love and the graciousness of God, he sends Jesus Christ and says, if you just believe in me, Hell is not anything to worry about. The devil's not anything to worry about. This world is nothing to worry about because we got heaven in our future. I mean, what a freeing thought that is. You know, the gospel is really supposed to be received as love. But, you know, when people have no leader, no direction in life, the most compassionate thing you can do for them is to share or explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Now, interestingly, Jesus does not give them a five-minute little devotional. He teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches until late in the day. The exhausted disciples, their stomachs are probably growling, finally probably come up to him. I can almost picture Peter walking out. Here's Jesus standing at the pulpit, and Peter comes up behind him and kind of tugs him on the robe a little bit. He goes, Jesus, do you know what time it is? I mean, send these people away so they get something to eat and so, so we can get something to eat and so we can get some rest. And Jesus turns around and looks probably at Peter and says, you feed them. You feed them. I used to think this was funny. I always thought Jesus was having a little joke with these folks. You feed them. I mean, Peter was like, there are 500 guys, 5,000 guys that didn't even bring a lunch. You know, it, not counting women, there may have been as many as 10, 12, 15,000 people out there. And Jesus said, you feed them. Peter might have said, are you kidding me? But you know, the more I study this story, the less I think that Jesus was joking. What had Jesus just done with these guys? He had sent them out to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they had done what? 
they had actually performed miracles. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. And I think that had they actually tried, they could have fed the 5,000 people. But you know, Matthew, the tax collector, and Judas, the treasurer, probably did some quick figuring. They're probably going, well, you know, if we spend four bucks on every person, and there are 5,000 men and about the same number of women and children, that would cost us, oh man, a half a year's wages. We don't have that much money, do we? In addition, we can't tell them to go back to these other little towns and buy them, but by this time it's late in the day, the shops would be closed. And can you imagine 10, 12, 15,000 people descending on little villages wanting to buy something? It would have overwhelmed those villages. Now, I don't think the disciples here asked the right question. See, the question should not be, are we to spend that much money? You ever heard that conversation in a church? <laughs> Somebody mentions a project, a mission project, and says, how much is it going to cost us? Isn't that often the first question? How much is it going to cost? Maybe the question should have been, we don't know how to do this, but obviously, Lord, you do, so will you show us how to get it done? I'm just saying, sometimes, friend, when God asks us to do the impossible, whatever it may be, our response shouldn't be to point out the cost and tell Jesus what a stupid idea it is. Our response would be, Lord, we don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. Can you show me how to get this done? But that's not their question. And as a result, they almost missed out on a miracle. So I, I want to ask and answer just two questions very quickly in closing. The first question is this. How do I miss a miracle? How do I miss a miracle? Well, the first way to miss a miracle is to focus on yourself. The disciples were hungry and tired. How are you when you are hungry and tired? Did the word cranky come to mind? Irritable? Testy? Only interested in yourself? Probably. The disciples thought that they were actually escaping for some rest and relaxation, and now they get this whole crowd around them, and guess what? They feel put upon. I'm tired. I'm cranky. Don't want people around. And now you're, you want something from me. Their response to the crowd was based upon how they would be affected. So they responded from the flesh and not from the spirit. The second way to miss a miracle is to think practically and logically. You know, the disciples employed this kind of logic. They were at a remote site. There were lots of people, 10 to 15,000 people. It was getting late in the day. And so their only conclusion that they could come up with was send them away. Send them away to get something to eat. Now, just keep in mind again, they had just come back from a trip where they had healed people, where they had cast out demons by the authority that Jesus gave to them. I mean, didn't they understand that Jesus could actually do things a little bit differently? But, you know, friends, regardless of our faith, our human tendency is always to go back to familiar ways. How much is it going to cost? 
How are we going to do this? We start thinking logically and practically instead of thinking like Jesus. It's like when we've been on a wonderful time away that kind of puts us on a spiritual high. You know, like the youth group, you know, they go on a, they go on a retreat and they come back and they're just all jacked up and they're all on a spiritual high until they get home. And then they're grumbly and cranky and they just go back to the way they used to be. And mom and dad feel like saying, can Katie get you out of town again soon? I mean, it's sometimes very difficult to incorporate new spiritual truths into our everyday, ordinary, familiar life. The third way to miss this miracle is to consider your resources. See, when Jesus answered it by saying, you feed them, their reaction showed that they indeed had returned to their old, old ways of thinking. And like many of them, like many of us, their first thought was, how much is this going to cost me? And so they began to evaluate Jesus' request, you feed them, based on, you know, their tangible assets. They started feeling around their pockets and purses and everything, and they just suddenly realized they didn't have enough money, and they didn't know where to buy things, and maybe they weren't even familiar with these towns or whatever. And it's like us, friends, when we view a situation from an earthly perspective, we're only going to see the best the world has to offer. So sometimes when we do these things, when we focus on ourselves and think practically and logically and consider what we have, miracles just kind of shoot right by us. Opportunities for things that would be really special are gone. So maybe we should ask the second question, how do we experience the miracle then? Let me give you a couple of ways again. The first way to experience a miracle is to see things with God's heart. Or sometimes we say to be able to see it through God's eyes. See, when Jesus looked out at this crowd, he didn't see what the disciples saw. The disciples saw little dollar signs. He saw hungry little mouths out there. They saw pesty people. They saw people who were ruining their time. And Jesus, it says, when he looked out at them, he had compassion on them. Still my favorite Greek word. Splunknitzomai. That's the word for compassion. I love that word. It just sounds funny. Splunknitzomai. It means to feel it in your guts. And that's the way Jesus did. Jesus had splunknitzomai. Compassion. He saw the people as God saw them. He said, here are a bunch of needy people. Here's a bunch of lost people. Here are people without a shepherd. And friends, I want to tell you that when the Holy Spirit lives in us, and if you call yourself a Christ follower today, You know, if you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. And when the Holy Spirit resides in us, we can step out of the way and let him show us how to respond to all of these situations. When we get out of the way, I mean, that's what I'm saying, and just kind of let God take over, we're on the path to seeing a miracle. I remember a few years back at a previous church, we were talking about building an addition one of the things we finally said was, we want to do something that can only be accomplished if God is in it. If we can do it on our own, maybe we shouldn't bother. But we're going to trust God. We're going to step out in faith. See, the second way to experience a miracle is to see it through God's eyes. 
I mean, God always looks at his children and, and he loves us. I've had people say, oh, man, if God knew what I was up to, <laughs> I got news for you. He does. <laughs> he does. Well, you know, when God looks at me, God must absolutely hate me. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Never says that in the Bible anywhere. Never says that, that God is hate. All it ever says is God is love. When God looks at you, if you are a Christian, guess what? Well, actually, I should say God looks at everybody in the world. God looks at everybody with love. But I always think about this. What does God see when he looks at Ted? He sees Jesus. That's what he sees. He doesn't see all of the mean, miserable stuff you may or may not have done in your life. He just sees Jesus. He sees somebody who loves his son. That's the way he looks at us. And like any father, he sees what our greatest need is. I mean, that's the way typically parents take care of their kids. They give them what they need. They don't give them everything that they want. I mean, because you've got a bunch of whiny little people who always want stuff. But you say, no, this is what you need. And God says, I'm not going to meet your greeds. I'm going to meet your needs. And instead of looking to God through the eyes of our circumstances, we need to look at the circumstances through the eyes of God. What is God calling us to do? What, how is God calling us to respond? You know, when the disciples looked at the hunger crowd, guess what? They saw a problem. When Jesus looked at the hungry crowd, he saw a possibility. Big difference between problems and possibilities. The third way to experience a miracle is to depend on God's resources. So we have a heavenly Father who's got all the resources in his hands. You know, whatever God calls us to do, I mean, God is not a person who doesn't pay his bills. I mean, what God calls us to do, God will provide the resources, whatever they may be. The Bible says he loves us and he wants to give us all good things. I mean, what would happen if you and I suddenly started looking at all of our circumstances in life with the heart of God? What would happen if we saw the possibilities through the eyes of God? What would happen if rather than whine and complain about what we don't have, we ask God to free up whatever resources are necessary to help us where we need it to achieve His will and His goals in life. That's a pretty interesting story when you think about it. Five and two. And not only do you feed five to 15,000 people, but when they gathered up, do you remember how many baskets full they got? It said they, they had 12 baskets full. Kind of an interesting little trivia question. Jesus feeds, you know, thousands of people twice in the Bible. One time they gather up the fragments and there are 12 baskets full. The other time there are only seven. Kind of interesting. Why is that? Study your Bible, you can find out the answer. Well, I'll tell you what the answer is. The first feeding was actually in Israel. The twelve are for the twelve tribes of Israel. The second feeding is actually done in Gentile territory, and there are seven Gentile countries that surround the Promised Land. Jesus said, bread for all. Not just you, but for everybody. It says that people ate and they were satisfied. 
I mean, I'm sure that everybody didn't just get a little dab of bread and a little bite of fish. I mean, they probably had a couple of filet fishes or whatever they turned out to be. And they were, they were the hunger and thirst of these wandering people in this desolate life. They found full and complete satisfaction that day in Jesus. I mean, that day on that remote hillside across the lake, Jesus satisfied their bellies because he was concerned about their physical needs. But today, friends, guess what? He has a much greater task. And it's not just to satisfy our bellies, although he wants to take care of us in every way, but it is to satisfy the soul. For us to find soul satisfaction. Whether you want to spell that S-O-L-E or S-O-U-L. He wants to be a soul satisfier. And that doesn't happen simply through doing Miracles, like multiplying bread or physical necessity. To satisfy the soul is for Jesus to offer himself up as the bread of life. That's why when I picked out a tie this morning, it's like I didn't have anything with fish on it or bread. But I looked at a tie, and right about hmm, here, it says, what? Can you read that? The bread of life. I mean, he, that's the way he satisfies us, by himself becoming the bread of life. And, and when did he do this miracle of teaching or feeding with the bread of life? Is when his arms were stretched out and he was nailed to the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus became the bread of life. It was on the cross where Jesus was multiplied and fed to all believers around this world. This is what happens when you come up to communion, isn't it? You receive the very body of whom? Jesus, the bread of life. I mean, Jesus on the cross gave up his body for the life of the world. He gave up his life as the price to feed the whole world. See, it's always through the cross that we discover who Jesus really is and what is in Jesus. It's here that we find the same person who can multiply loaves and fishes is overflowing with an abundant generosity in forgiving sins, in pouring out life into us, and in giving us every spiritual blessing. And while he certainly is able and capable of giving us, as we pray this our day, our daily bread, he gives us so very much more than just what it takes to meet our bodily needs. Jesus, the bread of life, provides for our eternal welfare. He's taken care of our soul forever. He's given us a peace that flows back into our lives, that satisfies our deepest longings and our deepest needs. And see, the hunger for this deeper life is always satisfied with the very one whose life itself. That's Jesus Christ. Now, for the previous seven weeks in another series, we ended by saying, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Today I'll end by simply saying, taste and see that the Lord is good.